Congregation, the scripture reading this afternoon is from the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, first of all, 17 to 37, and then we also read Matthew 26, 57 to 68. But we begin with Matthew 5, verse 17 to 37. And these are the words in Matthew 5 of Jesus in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, starting at verse 17 of Matthew 5. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause will, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that when one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And then we turn to Matthew 26. And this takes place after Jesus' arrest 
in Gethsemane and starting at verse 57 of Matthew 26. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? So far, the word of God. And we read that in connection with what we confess in Lord's Day 37 of the Belgic, of the uh, Lord's Day 37 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And there we confess the following. But may we swear an oath by the name of God in a godly manner? Yes, when the government demands it of its subjects, or when necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and the New Testament. May we also swear by saints or other creatures? No. A lawful oath is a calling upon God, who alone knows the heart, to bear witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. Congregation, along with this, I'd like to read with you also Article 36 of the Belgian Confession. Article 36. That's on page 515 in your Book of Praise. And there we confess the following about the civil government. We believe that because of the depravity of mankind, our gracious God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers. He wants the world to be governed by laws and statutes in order that the lawlessness of men be restrained and that everything be conducted among them in good order. 
For that purpose, he has placed a sword in the hand of the government to punish wrongdoers and to protect those who do what is good. Their task of restraining and sustaining is not limited to the public order, but it includes the protection of the church and its ministry in order that the kingdom of Christ may come. The word of the gospel may be preached everywhere and God may be honored and served by everyone as he requires in his word. Moreover, everyone, no matter what quality, condition, or rank, ought to be subject to the civil officers, pay taxes, hold them in honor and respect, and obey them in all things which do not disagree with the word of God. We ought to pray for them that God may direct them in all their ways and that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. For that reason, we condemn the Anabaptists and other rebellious people and in general all those who reject the authorities and civil officers, subvert justice, introduce a communion of goods, and overturn the decency that God has established among men so far. The Belgic Confession also. Brothers and sisters in the Lord and boys and girls who belong to the Lord, <clears throat> third commandment is the only, it's striking, but it's the only commandment um, in, the ten, in the ten which are explained in the Heidelberg Catechism, which are covered by two Lord's Days. And you maybe wonder if Lord's Day 30, 37 about the oath, because that's what it's about. Is it really important that this extra Lord's Day was drawn up and included in our catechism and remains there to this day? You shall. The, 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 the commandment is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, but do we need to include a whole extra Lord's Day about the oath? It is important, congregation. A few weeks ago, I received a letter calling me to report for jury duty in court. I didn't end up being required to sit on the jury, but I know that if I would have had to serve as a jury member, I would have had to swear an oath. Maybe some of you were, have been called to swear an oath in God's name as juror or witness when you, or, or maybe when you became a, a government official in some way notary public or so. You have to swear an oath in God's name. Even as a police officer or as a soldier or a member of the civil government. Or maybe, maybe you became a citizen of Canada and you had to swear an oath then too. The oath of citizenship. And it's always, an oath is always a solemn and serious occasion. Maybe you've watched it on the news our prime minister and his cabinet, the new, a new government. Maybe you'll watch the new president of the United States take the oath of office after the whole complicated elections in the United States have come to the full conclusion. And if you think about the use of the oaths in connection with our nation, then you realize that the oath is something more than people just raising the right hand and swearing an oath for a moment before they take on a task. The oath shows us that God and government and everyday life are connected. In spite of all that the people nowadays say that they're not connected, they are. God and government, God and nation. But you know, oaths also have to do with our being members of the church of Jesus Christ. In church, we bind ourselves to certain responsibilities and tasks in church office, in church membership, 
with the promises of parents of baptism, with marriage vows, which we have, as we'll say, marriage vows which have the weight of an oath. So what we confess with respect to the oath has to do with all of us as people living in this world and as members of Christ's church here. We use God's name in all those instances. And we may not use God's name in vain. And this afternoon, then, we, we consider the importance of the oath. This sermon has four parts, the issue of the oath, the gift of the oath, the deficiency of the oath, and the victory of the oath. First of all, the issue of the oath. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, just over a week ago, we remembered the 503rd anniversary of the start of the Great Reformation in 1517. I'm sure the boys and girls in Harvest School heard something about it at the time. Well, about 15 years after those 95 theses got posted on the church door in Wittenberg, about 15 years after that, the matter of the oath became a serious issue among Reformed people, among people who had left the church, separated from the Church of Rome. Among those people, you had a group called the, the Radical Reformation, Anabaptists, Anabaptists, they're specifically also mentioned in the article we read from the Belgian Confession, Article 36. And we confess there, for that reason we condemn the Anabaptists and other rebellious people and in general all those who reject the authorities and civil officers, subject, subvert justice, introduce a communion of goods and overturn the decency that God has established among men. Strong condemnation, something for us to consider in this time of the COVID crisis too when so many speak negatively about what the, the civil authorities are trying to do and deciding. You see, the Anabaptists rejected human government and rejected therefore also the oath outright. And that wasn't, that wasn't the rejection of the oath. It wasn't an issue that stood on its own, but it was part of the bigger picture of what they believed. It had to do with their view of this earthly life here. Anabaptists held to the view that as a born-again Christian, you were, in fact, a new creation totally, and you were lifted above this life here, which had been infected by sin. So believers were lifted up and were part of the kingdom of heaven which was completely separate from this world which is going to pass away when Christ returns which is going to be destroyed they said so they wanted to live separately from this evil world still in the grip of sin they were no longer in the grip of sin and you might have heard about John of Leiden a Dutch Anabaptist who claimed to be a prophet and got a huge following. In 1533, he so-called established the kingdom of God here in the middle of this world, established the kingdom of God. He and his followers rejected all worldly government. Government belonged to the natural fallen world and only had authority over people who were part of that world that natural fallen world, true Christians were separate from that. They didn't need any human government because Jesus Christ had redeemed them from this world which is perishing 
and they believed that he had already basically brought them into paradise. So no submission to human government, since they were governed by God, the Holy Spirit himself. Since the gospel would bring peace among people, no police, no military, no courts, no prisons were needed. And since there would be faithfulness, no official marriage vows were needed either. And you realize eventually that became polygamy. And money and owning property was outlawed since everyone had a communion of possessions and communion of goods, kind of communism. And no one needed to swear oaths then either since everybody who had been born again would only speak the truth. Sadly, John of Leiden and his followers seriously underestimated the remaining sinfulness which also remains in the hearts of believers. Without a government to restrain the depravity of the hearts of people, including those Christians, things went down, downhill pretty quickly there in Munster, the city where he established the kingdom. Munster eventually descended into a place of depravity, violence, robbery, lust, and drunkenness, and three years later, the city completely imploded and it was taken over by other local authorities and John and his associates were horribly put to death. That's a, that's a, that bit of history is the background of Article 36 of the Belgian Confession where it mentions the Anabaptists and our Lord's Day about the oath, the issue of the oath. And those confessional statements remain relevant for today. We see the descendants of the early Anabaptists in the Amish and the Mennonites of today. They believe that as people who belong to the kingdom of heaven, they need to live separately as they can from this fallen world. So they have their own way of life, their own way of doing everything, not part of this, this fallen world. They also refuse to swear any oaths to become government officials or become part of the military. They're anti-war and so on. They want to keep religion and government as separate as possible. And you know something? We live in a society which wants to do the same thing, actually, only from the other side. I noticed that on the call to jury duty, there was information for those who, who didn't want to, for principal reasons, swear an oath. So there's the possibility that you can simply make a personal pledge or promise on yourself, you know, putting your hand on your heart or so, instead of taking an oath. A lot of people don't want to say, so help me God anymore. And the reason is that they believe that everyday life, public life, political life has nothing to do with God. They say that if you want to believe in God, that's fine, but keep it to yourself and in your own home. It's something that should be completely separate from government in our secular society. And the thing is, religion and the Bible especially are becoming controversial today. If there are Christians in government or in official positions, they are looked down on and heckled if they say anything against same-sex relationships or against abortion on demand, then women's rights are being attacked or euthanasia. 
There's a growing sentiment that mentioning God's name and mentioning the Bible are taboo in the halls of government. You can't even wear symbols of religion in Quebec. God has nothing to do with government and life and society. And there's a danger for us to start thinking the same way, being comfortable with that, that we separate our religion from everyday life in this world and that we just keep it at home, make it something that is very private for us only. Nowadays, there are different powers at work than in the 16th century when the Catechism and the Belgic Confession were drawn up and adopted. Then it was Anabaptists who said church and world are basically completely separate. Today, it's the secularists who say that religion and government are totally separate and supposed to stay that way. But both have the same purpose. God's name has to be eliminated from the world in which we live in today, from everyday life. But you see, God gave the oath as a reminder that his name certainly has a place in this world, in this fallen world, and it needs to be used here and heard here. That is what the oath is about, and that brings us to the second part of the sermon this afternoon, the gift of the oath. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, God gave the oath in the Bible in order that what someone says in certain situations can be certified as the truth. He gave it as a gift to establish the truth in a world in which people are inclined to lie. He gave possibility to swear by his name so that there could again, that with that name there could again be a point of truth in a fallen world filled with untruth. He said, here is my name. You can swear in it. Here is a point of truth. God would never have given the oath if we had remained true in the Garden of Eden. Before the fall, we could say, like the Anabaptists, the kingdom of God was here on earth. We walked and talked with God, and our yes was yes, and our no was no, always and everywhere. But after the fall, we all became people whose hearts are inclined to speak deceptively, to lie, to protect ourselves maybe, to protect others for money, who knows, but to lie. And you could say that the oath is actually a finger pointing to paradise lost, and later on also a finger pointing to paradise regained, but we'll see that later. Sin has infected everything in our lives. We have to confess that. Is what the person you're making a business deal with, is he really speaking the truth? Marriage, social relationships, communication, all affected by unfaithfulness and untruth. Think of the media today. Hard to determine what is true and what's not. Because we can't 100% be taken at our word, life has become quite difficult after the fall into sin. We can't always count on each other as people, as fallen people in this world. It's wonderful that God gave us speech so that we can communicate with each other, but sadly, sin has poisoned our communication. How often don't we make promises to each other that we don't keep or fully keep? Because otherwise we're gonna lose out somewhere ourselves. Then what we say to others isn't really trustworthy anymore. 
And if we do that a number of times, people will not trust us anymore. Our tongues are deceitful. As the Apostle Paul writes about all people in Romans 3, their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. And he's talking about all people, all men. That's the way we are by nature. Also as believers, we all have that in our hearts. We all have to confess that rebirth and regeneration don't make us perfect in our speaking either, right? We hope that it does, but it doesn't have the ability to make us perfect people, as the Anabaptists thought. God created us good, but we've become so imperfect in our speech. Our speech should always be the truth and nothing but the truth, but the world is full of uncertainty and half-truths and untruths. Does he really mean what he says? Is what she describes really the way it is? Can I really trust her? What does he mean when he says that? Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, our words have in fact become so untrustworthy that God has given the oath in this world as a point of truth. He has given the government, he instituted every government, every, every government. He's given the government the right to ask us to say what we say in the presence of God. In court, or when we join the police force, when we become a Canadian citizen or so, when the official calls us to swear an oath, God is called on. And we speak in God's presence then. That's the character of the oath. His name is spoken. And we're asked to say what we have to say before him with God as our witness to what we are saying. It's a very solemn and serious thing then to speak an oath. You in fact say, I know that I speak in the presence of three. You as governing authority, God who sees everything, and me. And what I now say is the truth as God is my witness. He is the truth. He hears what I say. He knows what's in my heart. He is the supreme judge of what I say. And he has the right to punish me if I swear falsely. And you can think here, too, of what Laban said to the patriarch Jacob when they parted ways. Genesis 31. See, God is witness between us, Jacob, said Laban. God is witness how you treat my daughters. And Jacob agreed. He swore an oath about that. In the third commandment, God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In other words, you shall not speak my name without purpose for nothing. That's because God made himself known to us, gave us his name, and with his name gave mankind this wonderful gift in this unstable world with all kinds of lies and unfaithfulness, a stable point by means of which we can bring a degree of certainty and faithfulness in this fallen world in very difficult situations and other situations too where we need to know the faithfulness of the people involved in court, in politics, military. Actually, without the name of God, there cannot really be complete faithfulness and certainty here. God's name is important to this world, whether this world realizes it or not. 
Even in Russia and China, they swear oaths. Interesting to think about. If faithfulness and truth can't be certified with an oath in God's name here, then things will certainly go downhill in government and society just like they did in Munster. Then the truth will more and more be undermined and, and decency among men. And don't we see that in the government today which is trying to push the oath out and reject God in government? See, the, God's gift of the oath in his name shows us that that name is important in this world for the maintaining of this world, which is why we need also to teach the next generation to know God's name, his self-revelation, the point of truth in this fallen world, and which is why we need to speak up in the political arena when we can, and which is why we need to respect the civil authorities and the courts. We don't separate ourselves from the world, no, whether we work in construction or we're farmers or in the medical field or as teachers or students, we struggle to do our best to live out of God's word and to bring glory to his name. And when the government or necessity requires it, we can certainly swear an oath to maintain truth and fidelity and promote those things. However, I also have to say there's a limit to the use of the oath in that regard, and that brings us to the third part of the sermon, the deficiency of the oath. Brothers and sisters, as we mentioned before, our society today is basically secular. It doesn't want God's name mentioned in the public square. And nevertheless, we maintain the oath as gift of God in his grace to bring truth in certain important situations. However, we'll also have to realize that oaths can be misused because of the depravity of man. Oaths can also be misused, just like government can be, government institutions can be misused. The Lord's Day 37 speaks of the right use of the oath and against false oaths. Like when you, someone uses an oath unnecessarily in conversation, you know, they say, well, I swear to God that this happened. And God is my witness. Just in a conversation. We read part of Matthew 5 where the Lord Jesus says, verse 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Now the Anabaptists, they seized on those words to forbid any oaths at all and their descendants today do the same, but we need to take those words in context, of course. In saying what, Jesus, when, in saying what he did, Jesus had in mind self-made and unnecessary oaths. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saw a subtle way to get around the serious weight of the oath. And they set up a whole legal system of oaths that needed to be kept ultimate if in God's name, if you said God's name, and then other oaths that weren't as necessary to keep because they were sworn on something else, and then other oaths and other oaths. For example, if you swore an oath in the name of God, you had to keep that oath no matter what. But you could also swear an oath that was less binding. For instance, if you swore by heaven, it was not as binding. And if you swore by the earth, your oath was even less binding. If you swore by Jerusalem, it was less binding yet because it was just a city of stones. And if you swore by your own head, then it was even less binding. Imagine that someone swore by heaven that he, he would repay a loan of money by a certain time. But as time went on, he didn't repay the loan in time. And you'd go to him and you'd say, well, you swore to repay me by such and such a time. And then he could say, yeah, but I didn't swear in God's name. 
I swore by heaven, or I swore by my own head. So I'm not that bound to that promise. I can take more time if I want, and if, if you took him to court, he wouldn't be as liable if, if, he, if he had sworn in God's name. He was less liable because he swore by his own head. The gift of the oath meant to defend the truth, you see, was used by the Pharisees and the scribes as a weapon for the lie. Now, you might think, so they organized this whole smart system of accountability in those days, so what? What does that mean for us today? Brothers and sisters, young people, how the Lord's name is misused in the world and in the media today in direct and also indirect ways. Think of how often people today emphasize the truth of what they say in a simple conversation by using God's name somewhere. I swear to God or oh my God or just adding I swear or stating oh, I swear that on a stack of Bibles. That is, that's really what happened. You hear more of that all the time on the media too. You think well if God's name has to be out of, out of government and out of the country it's strange that God's name is used more and more as a kind of a, an addition in a conversation. Well, that's taking God's name in vain by making unnecessary oaths too. When you mention his name, like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, God's name doesn't belong in those situations, those, those unnecessary situations. It's a solemn thing to use God's name. People who talk like that don't understand the holiness of God and of his name. The first question of Lord's Day 37 asks whether we may swear an oath in the name of God in a godly manner. There are ungodly manners too. A godly manner of all people Christians should become conscious of the high value, the, the holiness of God's name. It's the name of him who sent, who, who sent his son to redeem us sinners. So we see that God's gift of the oath is is deficient, not because of, because of the name of God, but because due to the depravity of man, even the oath is still misused in this, this world, and the name of God. So the oath doesn't mean that the truth reigns here on earth now, and the use of God's name, no. But in Christ, we look forward to the day when all lies and unfaithfulness will be banished forever. And that brings us to the last part of the sermon, the victory of the oath. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, all this brings us to Jesus Christ. Thankfully, also for the sins of the tongue and concerning the name of God and unnecessary oaths sworn in his name, they can, all those sins can be atoned for with the blood of Jesus Christ. And we need that atonement, all of us especially also here as church members. You see, we swear oaths in church too. No, we don't swear an oath by raising our right hand and putting our other hand on the Bible and saying, so help me God. But congregation, realize that when you join a worship service, you are here in the presence of God. And as soon as the votum and the salutation are spoken, the worship service begins in the presence of God. Think of what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. If you're in church or join the, the worship online, you are in the presence of God. 
And then there are those special times in church life, for instance, when parents stand at the baptismal font here and they say yes to the question of the form for baptism, that they will instruct their child in the doctrine confessed by this church as soon as their child is able to understand and to have him or her instructed therein to the utmost of their power. They say yes in the presence of God and that has the value of the oath. That has the value of the oath. You don't need to call God to witness in church because he is here when the service begins. And as parents, we all know our weaknesses and shortcomings in this, right? It, with regard to that, that oath, we fall short. And it's the same with making public profession of faith. You say, I do, to the four questions of the form for profession in the, bap- in the presence of God and his church. That's also then really an oath. You, say, you state it in the presence of God. God is witness. Do you fully keep that oath as a living member of Christ's church as you promised to be? Think of being ordained to the office of elder or deacon or minister. You make an oath in the presence of God and office bearers know they're not always perfect in fulfilling what they promised when they were ordained. And then finally think of marriage. Marriage ceremonies are not worship services but couples are asked there before the Lord and these witnesses, but before the Lord and these witnesses to, to declare their love and devotion to each other and to be true to each other in good times and bad, in riches and poverty, in health and sickness, for as long as they both shall live. And all couples here know how much they need the atoning blood of Christ for their marriage, don't they? For the, the vows they made there, the oath that actually they swore. Congregation, if you think about how this Lord's Day applies to us all, then we're drawn to the cross of Christ, right? We need that cross. We have to embrace that cross to the atoning blood of our mediator and savior. In Matthew 26, we read how false witnesses rose up to accuse Jesus at his trial before the high priest, scribes, and elders. And then at the high priest Caiaphas' demand, the Lord Jesus swore an oath. He who is the truth in person. He swore an oath. The high priest said to Jesus, I I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Swear to us. Make an oath to us. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. That was an oath. In the presence of God. He in whose mouth was no deceit, always spoke the truth, was completely faithful to all he promised. He was treated as a sinner and a liar, untrustworthy, accused of blasphemy, of taking God's name in vain, sin against the third commandment. And then Jesus, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life was delivered up to Pilate for putting to death, sentencing to death. To death for us. And then the truth is victorious in Christ too. It didn't look like that on Good Friday as Jesus hung on the cross and died there. He was laid in the dust of death in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and looked as if the devil, the father of lies, had been victorious. But then on the first day of the week, Jesus stands before his disciples, risen from the dead, victorious over the lie. Peace, peace be to you. 
Congregation, you need to go to him with everything that is sinful in your life here. If you think about it, a whole big pile of untruths and shortcomings in connection with honoring God's name and with keeping your vows. And then you need to continue to struggle to live out of the truth of God's name and his word. And always also looking forward to the return of Christ and the coming of the age when every word we speak, as it says in Revelation, will have the value of an oath. Because we'll be living in the presence of God and of Christ forever in perfection. Every word completely 100% true. What a blessing it will be to live in a world like that. In Christ, the battle against the lies and the untruth in this life will be won. The battle of the lie, against the lies and the untruth in us will be completely won. We'll be victorious in Christ. Because as we're told about that time in, in the Lord's revelation to John, when he talks about the people that are standing there before the Lord, he says, in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless in Christ. Amen.